Welcome to The Lawyerist Podcast, a series of conversations about law practice. Each week, we talk with legal entrepreneurs and innovators about building a successful law practice in today's challenging and constantly changing legal market. And now, here are your hosts. Hi, I'm Sam Glover. And I'm Aaron Street, and this is episode 184 of The Lawyerist Podcast, part of the Legal Talk Network. Today, we're talking with Amy Morin about her book, 13 Things Mentally Strong People Don't Do. Today's podcast is brought to you by LawPay, Ruby Receptionist, TimeSolve, and New Law Business Model. We appreciate their support, and we will tell you more about them later in the show. So, Aaron, over the last couple days, I have been running a Twitter survey slash poll where I have asked whether law firms have a lawyer who doesn't use a computer, in other words, a hopeless Luddite, not somebody who like does all their work on an Oculus Rift or a smart refrigerator or something. And uh, the poll has a couple of hours to go, but it looks like it's been hovering around 20% of people have said yes. In other words, in our completely unscientific Twitter poll, we have learned that about 20% of law firms have someone who doesn't even use a computer. And here we are trying to talk about business strategy and you know design thinking and document automation. And is this just like 75 miles over everyone's heads? I don't even know. I'm well, thankfully, it is only 75 miles over the heads of at least one lawyer at 20% of firms. No, that's So it potentially is a small minority of firms. It's still a shocking number. I mean, not necessarily surprising, but still shocking. I mean, I asked my wife, who is also a lawyer, what she thought the number would be, and she thought 50%. So... Five zero uh, have yeah. lawyers in firms that don't use computers. <laughs> so we're beating her expectations oh, at least. Oh boy. <laughs> it is a fascinating thing where it was probably two years ago, you and I spent a lot of time kind of working the CLE circuit when basic technology competence as an ethics requirement was one of the hot CLE topics. Yeah. And at that point, we were doing a lot of talking about how, hey, you all need to understand how your technology works and you can't play dumb with technology and you can't pretend that technology doesn't matter. And now a couple of years after that was the hot topic. We've moved on and we are <laughs> talking about chatbots and document automation, all the things you mentioned. And apparently even basic technology competence it's still was a thing. too advanced for <laughs> an unfortunately large number of lawyers. And it's very unclear other than letting time play out what the solution is at that point. I mean, you pointed out this isn't even a question of like modernizing firms. The personal computer is over 20 years old in the sense of actually like people have been using them on their desks. Like this is just a refusal to accept reality uh, as far as I can tell. I don't know. Yeah. That said, give me your devil's advocate position here. That said, <laughs> and I think this applies to almost certainly zero of the people <laughs> implicated in this survey, but I can foresee that the theoretically perfect small law firm of the future, few if any of which exist at the moment, would be structured sort of like your experience at a dentist's office where you do all of your scheduling and intake with your dentist and your payments with your dentist with someone at the front desk. And most of your in-office experience is with an assistant, a hygienist. And the dentist's job mostly is just to walk from room to room for 10 to 15 minutes and at a time. scratch your teeth a little bit. And just put their hands in your <laughs> mouth and then move on to the next one. And I can foresee a theoretically perfect small firm of the future where a lawyer's job involves zero 
intake or scheduling or invoicing or marketing. And the lawyer's job is to quickly and systematically brief themselves on a client's case details and the issues at play, and then to spend their billable time thinking up the solutions using their lawyer problem-solving brain power, and then moving on to the next one. And in that model, you could have great lawyers spending very little time on computers. And so maybe right. this question could be answered by great lawyers in the future in a similar way. Right. You could have an A on the scorecard and maybe not even use a computer or limit it to, you know, communication technologies. You yeah. spend your days reading briefs and then meeting with clients. Sure. You know, to that point, like most lawyers spend more time than they ought to configuring systems, doing administrative work, managing things. But again, I'm really confident that zero of the respondents to this survey fall into that category. But like if that's you and you're meeting with clients in virtual, you know, virtual reality or something, and so you don't ever touch a PC, great. We'd love to hear from you, but I doubt it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it doesn't, your very unscientific survey on Twitter, which doubles the unscientificness right, because of it. Excuse techie. Yeah. You would it, think. It's representative of nothing other than like, holy shit. There's some crazy stuff going on in our marketplace and yeah. things are broken in a lot of businesses. And if you work at one of those firms, that is not a firm that's going to succeed in the future. If it can't figure out how to force or push out people to adopt the systems the firm is using, that is a firm that is destined to fail or disrupt itself in the short term. And you should have your eye out the door. Yeah, my, my advice was get the fuck out, start your own firm and be better, offer a superior alternative to that market and just blow that firm out of the water because like they're sitting ducks. I mean, yeah, they have existing business. People go to that firm, but probably only because they don't have a better choice. So if you're in a position where starting your own firm is even a conceivable option, you should take that option because I think it's a good one. Either that or craft my theoretically perfect small firm of the yeah. future and just keep those old Luddite lawyers and force them into the dentist role of just having their hands in people's mouths for 15 minutes. I will say, so one of the people who responded to the comment in our Facebook group that started this whole survey, I think gave the right answer, which is if you have people who are not even using computers, they're probably hopeless for sitting down and talking about adopting systems and modernizing the firm. And probably the best approach if you are wanting to adopt more modern technologies and practices in a firm like that is to just adopt them yourself. Start your own blog or your own website. Start using a computer, I guess. Um, you know, sign up for practice management software. Hopefully get the firm to pay for it because they're, they're tools that you want and need. But honestly, maybe even just foot the bill yourself if you have to. And by being more efficient, by building a book of clients who expect that level of service, hopefully the rest of the firm will see the advantage in doing things your way and start modernizing along those lines. Um, I think that was probably the best advice. And even if the firm doesn't move, you have a better practice and you're probably more portable because people are wanting to work with you in the way that you're working. So did I wrap that up a little bit? Yep. <laughs> so uh, this week's Lawyerist Lens is Aaron and I introducing you to some of the business and productivity books that we think you probably ought to read, including this week's podcast guest, Amy Morin. So you'll, you're going to hear more about her book now. Aaron and I are going to talk about it in this week's Lens. First, we're going to hear briefly from Scott Clayson from TimeSolve, and then we'll jump into my conversation with Amy. 
This is Scott Clayson. I am the marketing director at TimeSolve Corporation, an online legal billing, timekeeping, and practice management solution since 1999. Hey, Scott. Good to have you back. So today you're going to introduce us to some common trust accounting mistakes. What should we know about? Well, you know, trust accounting is always that kind of no fun part of you know running your law firm and making sure that you're in compliance with with your bar association. And one of the things that TimeSolve, of course, as as a software that allows you to manage your trust accounts fully, we run into a lot of questions and a lot of surprising things that some lawyers will do with their trust accounts. So that's why we decided to put out a brief kind of resource guide on some of the common mistakes that a lot of law firms will make and then some of the best practices. And we interviewed some consultants and CPAs that work with law firms for a living and, and they brought some of their insight as well. Um, so there's a lot of takeaways to what some of the mistakes are and, and things that uh, you want to make sure you do when setting up your trust account and then running it on a daily basis. But some of the highlights we have in, in this piece is the fact that there is a difference between a true trust account and your IOLTA account. And you need to know and understand in your state that the IOLTA account is essentially going to be for the money that isn't going to be held long enough to really earn any much interest at all. And that interest that is earned will go back to your uh, bar association typically to help you know, fund access to justice that a lot of people in your state potentially can't. So just knowing the differences between an IOLTA account, a retainer account, uh, which is a basically the same thing, and your true trust account. But just the idea that it's not your money. It is not a business reserve. It, you can't, you know, rob Peter to pay Paul because you know you're going to be able to, you know, input some money into that original trust account a couple hours later maybe. It just, that, that strikes me as the most critical thing is the money in your trust account is just not your money. Right. And if you if you just come in from that mindset from the beginning, you'll probably avoid uh, any sort of mistakes in the future. And that's part of, again, you know, ABA recommends this and, and the accountants that I've talked to have recommended this, that you just have to separate, separate, separate everything you do between your trust account and your actual operating account. And, you know, most lawyers obviously are fantastic at it, but, you know, there wouldn't be a, a cottage industry of CPAs and consultants who help law firms if it wasn't an ongoing issue. So what's next? It comes down to a couple of things that we feel like are, are good best practices, both when you set up your trust account, making sure that um, you've picked the right financial institution, that they know all about how a trust account works for law firms specifically. You want to make sure you think long and hard about who has the ability to sign on the trust account to move the money around itself. Again, you want to avoid any of that co-mingling that might happen between the trust account and the operating account. And then on the day-to-day -day basis, there really is just knowing the rules of your state because every state is just a little bit different on how you go about saying, okay, I've had this pool of money that's sitting in a trust account. When can I move it to my operating account? You know, is it right when the fees are earned? Is it when I send out the invoice? You know, what are the rules? And you have to make sure that you check in with your, your bar association and, and understand when exactly the trust account can be moved. And an example that one of our consultants talked to us about was the fact that, for example, in some litigation cases, it, a common mistake that she sees is that like it's a personal injury settlement that the the fees and the costs can't be withdrawn from the trust until the client they've been provided they've reviewed and they've signed like a proper closing statement and if you don't do that you can't move the money so it's like knowing those little things is truly your responsibility and you just got to make sure that you know the rules in your state and and part of this what we walk through is using your software 
then to apply those rules by maintaining detailed records, by making sure that you're, the software that you use to run your trust accounts can run the right reports, can transfer the trust accounts easily, that you can manage that. You know, for TimeSol, for example, and a lot of other billion timekeeping software, you can auto pay an invoice out of trust the minute it's sent. So it's automatically that invoice is marked as paid from the trust account and the money will be removed from the trust account in TimeSolve so that you have all of that, those records in place. So it's those things that you want to make sure that you know the rules, you have the tools to follow the rules, and the tools work properly for you. So if you'd like to know more about what's involved in trust accounting and avoid some common mistakes, you can go to go.timesolve.com slash trust accounting. And TimeSolve is spelled with no E at the end. That's go.timesolve.com slash trust accounting. Thanks so much, Scott. Thanks, Sam. Appreciate you having me. Amy Morin, and I'm a therapist turned author who wrote a book called 13 Things Mentally Strong People Don't Do. And then I wrote the spinoff, 13 Things Mentally Strong Parents Don't Do. And my new book, 13 Things Mentally Strong Women Don't Do, is coming out in December of 2018. Very cool. And obviously, we will have links to those in the show notes. I kind of want to just talk about things mentally strong parents don't do since I am a parent of a six-year-old and an eight-year-old who thinks she's 13. But um, <laughs> let's focus on the first one. Sounds good. Amy, what is like? What is mental strength? What does it mean to be mentally strong? Uh, so it's really, there's three parts to it. It has to do with the way that you think, the way that you feel, and the way that you behave. And so thinking is about developing a realistic mindset. Sometimes people think, oh, you just need to be positive, but that's not necessarily true because then you might end up being overconfident or dangerously optimistic. So it's about thinking realistically. You don't want to be negative, but you want to just be able to, to see things for how they are and to accept some of your limitations perhaps, but also to, to know that you to have hope for the future, all of those sorts of things about the way that you think. And then when it comes to the emotional aspect, it's about knowing that it's okay to be sad and it's that you can trust yourself that you can handle some anxiety, but knowing that you don't have to stay stuck in those uncomfortable and distressing situations, that you do have some control over how you feel. And then the third part is about your behavior. So it's choosing to take positive action. So even when you face really difficult circumstances or tough times, you can say, well, what are my choices? What am I going to do? Rather than just be a, a passenger in your own life, how do I get in the driver's seat and, and make things happen? It feels a little bit like we're talking about resilience. Is that similar or related or just a part of being mentally strong? Yeah, I think you could say it's a part of it. I think when people talk about resilience, they're usually just referring to how do you bounce back when something bad happens. And that's definitely part of mental strength. But I don't want to tell people you should build mental strength simply because bad things are going to happen to you. And that's true. However, I think mental strength helps you in everyday circumstances. Even life is going well. If you're mentally strong, then you can enjoy being happy and you can accept joy. Whereas sometimes if we just talk about resilience, it's just how do you deal with the bad stuff? That's a really good point because when you say mentally strong, I think of why do I need to be strong? I need to be strong when bad things are happening to me. Do you have like a ready-made example of how mental strength matters just day to day? Well, you know, if we just took that example of, of happiness as a therapist, I'd see a lot of people who would come into my office after something good happened 
And they would say, you know, I'm just, I'm waiting for the other shoe to drop Mm. or good things don't happen to people like me, or this isn't going to last. And so then they couldn't even enjoy the really good things in life um, because they were convinced that they had beliefs that something bad was about to happen too. And so I think to to just get through everyday life or to, to push yourself outside your comfort zone a little bit, you need to be mentally strong because you have to have confidence that, that you can handle being uncomfortable. And ironically, a lot of people that end up in my therapy office, they've spent so much time trying to avoid being uncomfortable that they've created this life for themselves that causes them to be distressed. And so when you can say, all right, I can handle, I can handle the stress. I can handle being uncomfortable. I don't need to to go for the instant gratification. It just creates a much better life in the long term for you. You know, when I talked with Dean Cardinal about uh, his experience, you know, learning lessons in Mount Everest and stuff, he talked about being comfortable, being uncomfortable, which is something that comes up a lot with outdoorsmen and adventurers. And it sounds very similar to what you're saying. Yeah, I always talk to people about, you know, I I don't think you need to abuse your body for the sake of abusing your body, but to know, okay, well, how do I, how do I get through things in a way that can help me create a better life? So for somebody in an everyday aspect, it might just be put myself out there socially, or I'm going to create some new habits in my life. And then by day three, it's really hard to keep up with those habits, but how am I going to stay motivated and keep that up? Whether it's a diet change or change in how they're going to take care of their home or how they're going to take care their kids relate to their partner. So there's lots of little things um, on everyday basis that mental strength can help with. And I guess being comfortable being comfortable. I mean, I feel like sometimes one of the hardest things about getting out of law school, going into the workplace and having kids was I started finding myself with like large blocks of time where I was just kind of bored. <laughs> yes. And like there's nothing wrong, but it, it took a while to figure out like what to do with that time. And so maybe being comfortable, being comfortable is part of that too. I think so. So many people, you know, right before they're about to to meet a big goal or life has been kind of calm for a while and they're just not used to it. They sometimes create havoc in their life and they don't do it on purpose, <laughs> but they sabotage themselves or they go out and they do something and they think, well, what, what did I do that for? Life was good. And then I sort of did something to stir things up because it can be uncomfortable to say, I'm just going to enjoy the ride for a little bit too. The book is based on a blog post I think you did called um, 13 Things Mentally Strong People Don't Do. And and I assume that kind of blew up. Is that where it came from or do I have it backwards? Yeah. So (laughs) no, you have it correct. And so I was a therapist who had created a side hustle of writing and um, it was just a, a way to earn extra income. I had gone through a series of losses in my life. My mother had passed away when I was 23. And then on the three year anniversary of when my mother passed away, my 26 year old husband died of a heart attack. Oh my God. And then I was remarried a few years down the road. And um, shortly after I got remarried, my father-in-law was diagnosed with terminal cancer. And I was thinking, okay, this isn't fair. Why do I have to keep losing loved ones? Something good happens and now something bad happens. And I was doing all of the things that I sort of had taught my therapy clients over the years not to do. And I thought, all right, none of this stuff I'm doing right now is going to be helpful if I'm going to go through grief again. It wasn't like I had a choice. And so I sat down and I wrote a list of the 13 things mentally strong people don't do. And it was a letter to myself of all the things that could rob me of mental strength. And I would read over that list to myself just as a way to remind myself, don't do these certain things right now. And then I published it online a few days later because I thought, well, if this list is helpful to me, maybe it will help somebody else and stepped away from my computer, never imagining what would happen next. But it went crazy viral within a matter of days. It was read by millions of people and celebrities, NFL players and the prime minister of New Zealand. <laughs> were all talking about it on Twitter. 
And Forbes magazine reached out to me and said, we'd like to reprint your list. And uh, the national news was calling, hey, we want to put you on TV talking about this. But nobody knew why I wrote it. They thought, wow, you're a therapist and you've mastered these things. And nobody knew, no, I wrote this because I'm struggling with it. And the story didn't come out that that was the, the story behind it. When I had written the article, it was literally pretty much just a list with a little blurb about each of the 13 things. And fortunately, in the midst of all that, a literary agent called and said, you should write a book. I said, well, I got to tell you, there's a story behind it, but I'm a therapist. I listen to people's problems. I don't know if I want to share mine with the world. And she said, well, you know, you don't have to, but it might make it more credible. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so I decided, all right, I'm going to share the backstory and say, all right, it's not that I have perfected this list. It's that I struggle with it too. And I uh, was fortunate to have the book come out sort of to share Paul Harvey's the rest of the story. Well, let's, um, I, I don't want to spoil the book or the blog post by just walking Walking through what's already in it, people can go hit the link in the show notes and see it. But I think I noticed a few themes running through those that are maybe worth talking about. We we hit on resilience a bit, but one of the other ones I noticed is kind of independence, um, not giving away their power, um, not worrying about things they can't control, not worrying about pleasing everyone else. Say a little bit more about the role of independence in this, in mental strength. It definitely plays a role. We're social creatures by nature. So I think it's so important to have a, a healthy, thriving social life and to get along with people, even people that aren't necessarily cute. But at the same time, I find uh, so many people are so busy these days that they never carve out any time to just sit and think. Even people who come into my therapy office will say, I just can't shut my brain off. And the scariest thing to them would be to sit quietly for five minutes without staring at their cell phones Mm. because they just, you know, it's easy to text. It's easy to talk to people. It's easy to have TV or radio or everything going on all the time. And we never really spend much time alone with our thoughts. At least most people don't. In fact, they did this study where they asked people, would you rather sit quietly and meditate for 15 minutes or submit yourself to an electric shock. (laughs) And 25% of the women opted for the electric shock. And then 75% of the men opted for the electric shock. So that that confirms some stereotypes, doesn't it? (laughs) Well, you know, and I think it just speaks volumes about us at this point that, that we don't really sit and just think. And I think in order to be mentally strong, you have to take time for yourself, be comfortable with your thoughts, know that, all right, maybe you're going to think negatively sometimes. Maybe you're going to dwell on the past or maybe you're going to call yourself names, but how do you reframe your thinking? How do you set goals for yourself? It could just be five or 10 minutes a day. And for some people, it might mean writing in a journal for somebody else. It might mean meditating. Somebody else might just say, I'm just going to sit and stare at the wall for 10 minutes. But there's so much focus these days on being productive all the time. And people are so busy Mm -hmm. that we don't do that. And we spend so much time planning certain things in our life. You plan a vacation, you plan your wedding, but we don't really plan our lives. And I think in just 10 minutes a day, if you just sat and thought, okay, how do I do today? What are my goals? What do I want to do better tomorrow? What am I grateful for? Just a few minutes of quiet reflection could make a a big difference because it's so easy to get caught up into doing what other people want you to do or to uh, start struggling with certain emotions or you decide, I hate my job and it's my boss's fault because my boss (laughs) is mean to me or whatever it is. But just spend a few minutes and thinking, what could I be doing better in life? What am I already doing well? What do I want to do differently? And that's just one simple thing that could make a huge difference in the quality of your life. Well, I suppose there's also this piece of it, which is about allowing other people to influence you more than more than they ought to. Right. Like I remember where I heard it, but it's, you know, anger is a choice, not an emotion, or at least that's one way to look at it. You know, I get to decide 
how I respond to the things that life throws at me. And I also get to decide whose opinion I care about. And there's a, an amount of healthy I don't care that goes into it as well, uh, into the idea of independence and, and how to stay strong. Absolutely. I think out of all the 13 chapters in my book, um, the chapter, chapter number two, which is that they don't give away their power, has been hmm. the one I get the, the most response about. And people will say, even people in really powerful leadership positions, if I go to a speaking engagement, will come up to me afterward and say, you know, I was giving my mother-in-law some, some too much power in my life. And I think if we were all honest, we could say, well, who, who do I give too much power to sometimes? And it might be power over the way that you think. If somebody's critical of you and it starts to change the way that you think about yourself, that means you're giving somebody too much power, or maybe it's power over the way that you feel. You spend three weeks dreading some event that you have to go to because you don't want to see somebody. Mm-hmm. They've just taken three weeks of your life. And, you know, we should give negative people the least of our attention, but sometimes we give them the most. We think about them. We talk about them. We dread seeing them. We worry about what they're going to say or what they're going to do. And then after you see them, you sort of rehash, oh, gosh, they shouldn't have said that or that was terrible. And then they end up taking up way more space in your life than you want them to. And so Sometimes it's about setting boundaries, physical boundaries of saying, I'm not going to talk to that person, but it also might just be emotional boundaries. If you can't necessarily not talk to your coworker or you can't cut somebody out of your life. So it's then about saying, okay, this is how this person is and it doesn't necessarily reflect on me. So how do I deal with, with the emotions that come up in a way that I'm not going to let that person ruin my day or ruin my week. Maybe this is a trivial, but Merlin Mann talks about like your email inbox in the same way. He said, it's like this insidious thing where you give people the power to divert your attention and dictate what you do with your day by checking your email, <laughs> which I think yes. is, is true, right? I think that's a great example. And how often do we get, I've done this before, you get resentful of somebody who's sending you constant bombarding you with emails and you know, asking you questions over and over again. Well, it's my choice to check my email and it's my choice if I respond. Uh, I can hit the mute button too if it's somebody that's sending me uninvited, unsolicited content. Mm -hmm. So just to know, how am I going to take control over that? It's not that person's fault for doing that. I can set boundaries in lots of different ways. You talk, I think another theme running through the 13 things is we talked about it as resilience, but it's like not beating yourself up over the past or wasting energy, worrying about things that are beyond your control. This brings to mind parenting where I'm always beating myself up over, you know, the last argument I had with my kids or something, but (laughs) the, uh, how do you shed that, not kids, but just in general, like how do you forgive yourself for the last mistake? Uh, you know, I think it's important to pay attention to when you're when you're thinking about something. If you are rehashing something that already happened and ruminating, we know that's all linked to, to depression, to anxiety, to poor mental health and psychological well-being. So just to, first of all, notice it. And there's a difference between problem solving and ruminating. So if you're thinking, okay, how do I, how do, I do better next time? That's helpful. Yeah. How do you notice the difference between those two things with the productive thinking about the past versus the unproductive wallowing? So it depends. So if you can say to yourself, uh, am I actively thinking about next time how I'm going to do better if I made this mistake, then okay, what could I have done differently? Versus ruminating, which is often the same things over and over. So you just keep replaying it in your head and you get stuck or you just are calling yourself names or saying saying things like, I'm never going to be able to do anything differently. I just, I'm a loser. Uh, That's when it's not healthy. And that's when you need 
to catch it and say, okay, what can I, what can I do differently? And so to ask yourself, am I ruminating or am I problem solving? And if it's problem solving, keep going. If you're ruminating, uh, change the channel, go get up and go do something. If you tell yourself, don't think about that, you'll keep thinking about it. But if you physically get up and say, I'm going to, you know, go do a task in the other room, it could be as simple as I'm going to clean the kitchen for a few minutes, just sketch your mind off of it. Um, so that you don't just stay stuck there thinking about it over and over again. And for some people, it's helpful to come up with maybe a, a affirmation or mantra, short saying, if they keep thinking about the same thing, maybe it's something that happened 10 years ago and it always comes up for them to have a little saying that you say to yourself, like, I can't change the past. I'm, I'm only moving forward. Mm. And just say that to kind of drown out all that negativity that bombards you. I feel like I read somewhere too that creating a plan um, based on your mistakes helps make sure that you don't repeat them because the next time that comes up, you've got a plan. You know what you know what you intend to do this time around and you just put your plan into action. Exactly. And so, you know, I'm all for planning and uh, self-reflection that helps you learn. Uh, you know, part of my book is about learning from your mistakes, but at the same time, not giving up after your first failure to know how do you move forward better? Uh, how do you take the skills and the lessons that you've learned so that, so that you can go out there and, and do better next time um, rather than staying stuck or thinking, uh, drawing a conclusion if you failed at something and thinking, well, it wasn't meant to be, or I'm not good at this versus the uh, mindset that says, no, I can learn from this. I can grow. I can try again. So we need to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors and we come back, we'll keep talking about one more aspect of the 13 things and then a question I have for you about mental strength. So we'll be right back. Support for today's episode comes from Ruby Receptionists, dedicated to helping you grow your practice one happy caller at a time. From their offices in Portland, Oregon, Ruby's live virtual receptionists work in tandem with their innovative technology to answer your calls live with your custom greeting, transfer calls through to you when and where you want, collect new client intake and messages, make follow-up calls, and more. Delighting your callers in English and Spanish just like an in-house receptionist at a fraction of the cost. They integrate with Clio, Rocket Matter, and Lexicata, as well as the contacts and calendar on your cell phone to easily integrate into your workflow. Ruby can host your local phone number or provide you with one, giving you the opportunity to make dual use of your phone. Call clients using your office or personal number as you please via the Ruby mobile app. For over 15 years, thousands of attorneys have been turning rings into relationships with Ruby receptionists. To learn more, call 844-715-7829 or visit callruby.com slash lawyerist2018. Alexis Neely has been training lawyers on the new law business model she created to build her million-dollar law practice for more than 10 years. Over that time, she saw that some lawyers were hugely and immediately successful with it, and others spun their wheels, never getting anywhere. Just recently, she decided to figure out what made the difference. After reviewing all of her clients' successes and failures, as well as her own, she identified five shifts that were the common denominator among all the lawyers who today have high six- and seven-figure law practices they love. To learn what she discovered and apply it to your life and law practice, go to newlawbusinessmodel.com lawyerist. Did you know that attorneys who accept online payments get paid 39% faster on average than those using traditional payment methods? With LawPay, the only payment solution offered through the ABA Advantage program, you can accept client payments online, via email, or in person. No equipment needed. Visit lawpay.com lawyerist to sign up and get your first three months free. Trust the only payment solution developed for attorneys and recommended by 47 state bars. LawPay. Okay, we're back. So Amy, one of the other things I think I see in here is optimism, kind of looking towards the future and making sort of bets on a better future. Does that sound right? 
Yes. And I try to make it clear about realistic optimism, not the foolish kind where you say, gosh, nothing bad will ever happen. My life's going to be all roses or I just know I'm going to be rich. But to know, okay, realistically and to to have some hope for the future. Otherwise, uh, it'd be tough to to get out of bed in the morning if you didn't think that you have the power to to create a better life for yourself and that you do have some control. You don't have control over the, the universe, but that you have some control over the choices that you make every day from the time you wake up in the morning till the time you go to bed. It's up to you to decide what you're going to do, who you're going to interact with, and how you're going to make that happen. And I speak to so many people who are really down about about the state of affairs right now or people who are, who are just convinced I was born unfortunate and my life's going to keep going that way. Really have this uh, locus of control, external locus of control where they think life sort of happens to them versus, no, I have the power to to create a better life for myself if I want. And it's all about the choices that I make today. You You talk about taking calculated risks. And I think that is so important for entrepreneurs and many of our audience are entrepreneurs either intentionally or not. And um, I think it's really easy to start telling ourselves reasons why we can't do something even though it looks like it is a good calculated risk to do it. How do you recommend people start thinking more positively about those calculated risks? Uh, First of all, it's important to just recognize your emotions. We know that the way that you feel plays a huge part in it. Yet at the same time, if you ask adults, name 10 feeling words, most people can't do it. Um, Hmm. We don't talk about feeling, we don't think about them. And and I'm not suggesting people go out there and start having, you know, heart to heart conversations with their coworkers or anything like that. But just on the inside, we talk so much about emotional intelligence, but that sort of become a buzzword. But how do you actually label your emotions? Am I scared? Am I worried? Am I disappointed? Am I uh, angry? Because your emotions play into everything. That's why, say, get-rich-quick schemes work. People get excited, and then when they go to make a choice, that excitement clouds their judgment. Well, we know uh, anxiety does that as well. And studies will show you could be worried about something completely unrelated to the risk. Maybe you have uh, you're waiting results from the doctor and you're really anxious about it, well, then an opportunity comes up in your business, you're less likely to to take it because your anxiety spills over from one area of your life to another. So just simply recognizing, okay, I'm feeling really anxious. How's that clouding my judgment? How's it affecting how I look at this? And then, you know, I'm a big fan of writing things down. Hmm. When you look at something on paper, it raises your logic and sort of balances out that emotion. So if you just write it down, here's the pros and the cons of taking the risk. But then you flip it over and you say the pros and cons of not taking the risk, too. And that can help you just think a little more realistically about it. And then I suppose having the patience to see it out, right? Like there are very few instant gratification things in the world besides Amazon, although even that takes two days. So <laughs> having a plan, sticking to it and and waiting to see if it works, whether it's exercise or business, I, I think that's probably a pretty important part of it, too. It is. You know, I so I became a therapist in uh, 2002 and just the difference between our patients in 2002 and 2015 is incredible that we no longer have patients. It's, I think the inventions of smartphones and things like Amazon and things now and used to be, you had to order something from a catalog and wait for it to get delivered. <laughs> right. I mean, now we don't even want two day shipping, right? We want to like click a button and we want it to magically appear on our doorstep. And I think that's made a, a big difference in the self-improvement world. People will come into my therapy office and they'll say, well, Therapy's not working. It's been two weeks and my depression isn't cured. 
And sometimes people want a magic pill or just if they set goals for themselves, whether it's I'm going to lose weight or I'm going to start reading a book every day or I'm going to uh, to start going to the gym more. But if they don't see results within two or three days, people are ready to throw in the towel or they're ready to declare that they're a failure. Or if they just aren't seeing progress fast enough um, when it comes to saving money or their business goals. So I think it's super important to have a realistic uh, plan in mind and to realistically know, okay, when are you going to re- see results? And to know that sometimes a step backwards doesn't mean that it's a failure. It doesn't mean you went all the way back to the beginning, but sometimes progress doesn't come in a straight line. You go two steps forward, one step back, and that's all part of the process in, in moving forward. So I think patience is definitely really important. It strikes me that one of the things that mentally strong people probably don't do is worry a lot about whether or not they are mentally strong. Mm-hmm. And so when I read your post, one of the things I wondered was like, can you really become mentally strong by worrying about that and by thinking a lot about whether or not you're mentally strong and, and repeating these guideposts to you? That's what I'm wondering. And, and maybe I'm, I'm just wondering how you think through that. Yeah, I think, you know, I think we should talk about mental strength in a similar way that we talk about physical strength. So if you wanted to become physically strong, you'd probably go to the gym and you'd lift weights. And for some people, it does become more of an, an unhealthy obsession with them and, um, you know, that they just can't enjoy life anymore because they're so obsessed with it. We could say the same for mental strength, that at some point, you, it could start to backfire on you if you're thinking constantly. Every question you ask yourself is, wait, is this mentally strong? How do I do this differently? And that would be an example of not being all that mentally strong. But it's important to a point to be able to reflect enough and say, okay, am I building mental muscle? What did I do well today? What can I do better tomorrow? But it's not the the neurotic kind of second guessing everything you do and and worrying about it constantly because that will make it difficult to function in life. So I think like with everything in life, it's about finding a healthy balance, about thinking about it. But you also don't want to overthink it. That makes a lot of sense to me. And I really like the analogy to physical strength or exercise because like I know for myself, like I started running. I was insufferable about running to everyone around me. They got an I'm sure I was annoying the shit out of everyone with how much I talked about running. And then after about a year or so of running, I'm in good enough shape where it's just something that I do and I don't talk about it as much anymore. Now I'm annoying everybody about skateboarding. (laughs) It's a cycle. But I can see that. And in the same way, like, sure, when you start out practicing mental strength, you are maybe you're not telling everybody else around you about it, but maybe you are, but you're just being neurotic in your head. And then over time, you've developed new habits. It becomes something that you do. And so you can become mentally strong by worrying about whether or not you're being mentally strong. Yes. I think, yes. I think a lot of times people in the beginning, they'll read my book and they're so fired up and everything. They just want to make sure that they're doing everything right. And then after a while, it becomes more like second nature. And I like to use the analogy about mental strength and physical strength for a few reasons. Uh, One is that there's, sometimes people will say, well, if I have depression, does that mean I'm not mentally strong? Hmm. To which I'll say, well, let's say you had diabetes. Could you still become physically strong? Yes. It's a complicating factor, but it's all about the choices you make on a daily basis. And then people always want to know, why do you talk about what not to do in terms of mental strength? I tell them this analogy. If we were talking about physical strength, maybe somebody said to me, hey, go to the gym and lift weights. But if they didn't also remind me, by the way, quit eating a dozen donuts on your drive home, (laughs) I'd be sort of upset that I wasted all of this time lifting weights and and yet I didn't see any muscle definition. And then mental strength is the same. I think so many people, there's so much out there about good habits that people feel overwhelmed and they don't even know where to begin. And, you know, when 
people say, oh, you should do this differently or you need to go out there and do this. But if you just give up some of the bad habits that you do in life, it makes your good habits so much more effective. And I'm all about working smarter and not just necessarily harder. That makes a lot of sense. Amy, thanks so much for being with us and talking about mental strength. We'll include links to your blog post and your books in the show notes. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. Make sure to catch next week's episode of The Lawyerist Podcast by subscribing to the show in your favorite podcast app. And please leave a rating to help other people find our show. You can find the notes for today's episode on lawyerist.com slash podcast. The Lawyerist Podcast is produced with help from Lindsay Calhoun and edited by Paul Fisher. The views expressed by the participants are their own and are not endorsed by Legal Talk Network. Nothing said in this podcast is legal advice for you. 